Good afternoon. It is an absolute joy to be in this place with each of you this afternoon, and it's my privilege as the pastor in location here at Brisbane to deliver God's Word and to help us meditate on the things that are above. We've been going through this series called Rework. You'll see how the gospel redeems, rebuilds, and restores our work, because fundamentally, as Christians, we believe that being a Christian is not just a Sunday thing, it's a Monday thing, it's a Tuesday thing, it's not just a religious thing, it's a, it's a life thing. Following Jesus invades and permeates every facet of our being, every facet of our life. And this series is aimed towards informing us about work and transforming the way we inhabit our work as followers of Jesus. We want you to have a good theology of your nine to five, and we want you to have a transformed exhibition of the kingship of Jesus in your workplace. And maybe your work has changed. Maybe at the start of this series you didn't have a good theology of work, but now you know why work is good and therefore necessitates that you pursue excellence. Maybe you didn't have a good theology of rest and now you understand that to be human, the sweet spot for the good life is a rhythm of work and rest and work and rest. Maybe you had no idea that work is in a sense, according to the Christian story, cursed. But now you know work is cursed and and we're doomed to experience thorns and thistles in the work that we do. And so you know now not to idolize work, not to see work as the primary place through which you get your meaning and your value, your worth and your identity. You know not to do that. It's tempered just a bit and you're free. We hope that you've changed. And here's 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 my hope as the pastor of New Life Brisbane, that your work has changed so much so that you live such a life in your workplace that causes people to ask questions to which the Lordship of Jesus is the answer. Today I want to talk about what it might mean to articulate the gospel of Jesus when our work friends ask us, when our children ask us. Whatever stage of life you find yourself in, we all need to be people who understand what it means to communicate the gospel because there's two areas that we can fall into. The first error is that we might share the gospel with the people that we involve our life with, but we ourselves don't have a transformed life. And if that's, one, if that's where you find yourself being, um, people are going to respond to that kind of experience by thinking this. They'll think, oh, this guy shared with me about Jesus, but who also delights in doing a bad job at work, so the gospel must not be true. If you preach a life-changing message but don't have a changed life, that's, that's one error. The other end of the spectrum is to live such a changed life, but not tell people why. Like as if you could do such a good Excel spreadsheet and just assume that people would trace from that up to the Lordship of Jesus. Or be such a great student that people would be amazed by what you do and get from there to a crucified Messiah, dead for our sins. We want to avoid both of these errors. We want to live such a life that people ask questions and then be ready when they ask to lean in with courage and poise and tact to articulate the gospel of Jesus. And to do that today, I want to share with us two things, two things that we need to know in order to share the gospel. One, we need to know what the gospel is. And two, we need to appreciate the story of the person in front of us. We need to know the story of the gospel and we need to know the story of the person in front of us. So first, the message and the story of the gospel. The gospel, it comes from a Greek term, term, euangelion. It's used 77 times in the New Testament. 
And it just, it simply means this, good news. Not rocket science, you might have heard that before. It just means this, good news. But one thing that a lot of people don't know is that the gospel, euangelion, good news, it's not a religious term historically. It's a political term. It's the kind of term that heralds would use to bring the news of a defeated kingdom and the ushering in of a new reign. In 44 BC, Julius Caesar was the emperor of Rome, but he was assassinated. And his adopted son, Octavian, sought to fend off those who assassinated his you know, then father. And he won back the empire for Rome. Afterwards, he got into a fight with Mark Antony, and they wanted to have ultimate power over Rome. Octavian won, and the news that he had won in the final battle of 31 BC was spread across the Roman Empire. Suppose you were living in Rome at the time. Rumors of war, division, usurpation, 13 years of civil war, rumors are spreading, and your question is this, how'd the final war go? How'd it go? Who won? Who's now in power? What's now changed about history? And one day, someone comes running from battle, and they're a herald, and they say this, they enter the city gates, and they yell out in the city square, Euangelion, good news. Octavian has overthrown Mark Antony. Caesar has won a great victory. He's now the Lord of the Roman Empire. The gospel, it wasn't good advice. It wasn't a religious system. It wasn't moral direction. It wasn't anything other than a political announcement. News about something that had happened in history because of which the entire known world as you experience could change. That's the gospel at least historically. So here's the question. What do you think the gospel is? Maybe you're a Christian here today and you love this buzzword gospel. What do you think the gospel is? Maybe you're not a Christian. You've got no Christian background, no Christian framework. I'd say I've been there too. That's my sort of historical story. But you hear this word and you're like, what does this mean? And I want, I want to declare it to you today. I want to unpack it to you. Because more than 10 years ago, it changed my life. I've never been the same person since. And so I want to declare to you the gospel today. For many people... This is me talking to Christians right now, right? The gospel is like a systematic explanation for why I can go to heaven. The story goes something like this. Humans are sinful, and they're cut off from God, and we're destined towards hell, but luckily Jesus died our de- paid our debt, died in our place, and so now we can go to the good place instead of the bad place. That's what people think the gospel is. They think it's a systematic explanation for why I can go to heaven. Hooray. Now, on one level, this is actually true. It's true that there is judgment coming. It's true that the way we live our lives really matters, that there's a transcendent reference point for the way we inhabit this world. But the promise, the promise of the gospel is eternal life. But there's a few problems with this story, just a few. The first problem with this story is that it's biblically, it starts with a biblically unfaithful starting point. What do I mean? Well, the story of the Bible, it doesn't begin with humanity being made sinful. Our memory as humans doesn't echo back just that far. It begins with God making us for good and for him. And so if you preach a gospel which begins with telling people that they're sinful, you start in Genesis 3 and you end in Revelation 19. And that's not the gospel Jesus preached. The gospel addresses our human sinfulness for sure, but it also addresses our original calling to steward creation. We unpacked that in week one. I totally encourage you to go and check that out. True gospel proclamation should address both the sinfulness of humanity as well as remind them of their original calling. Number two, it's a two-dimensional view of sin. 
Sin is not just personal wrongdoing, as if God created humans, gave them a rule book, and said, obey or else. Sin is way more serious than that. I'm not blunting sin, I'm actually increasing the stakes of it. Sin is way more serious than just divine uh, sort of transgression of a rule book that God gave us. Sin is the rejection of our God-given vocation to steward creation, which is, here's what that means. If God intends humans to be the agents through which he renews and restores and blesses the world, and we rebel from that calling, then it means that God's world that he wants to make good itself is at risk of not getting there. That the agents God intends to use to bring renewal themselves are in need of rescue, which means sin isn't just personal wrongdoing. It's got social, political, and cosmic ramifications. This is not as simple as saying, oh, I stuffed up. The world is at stake because of sin. The world is at stake because of sin. Third, this message creates converts and not disciples. It's a big problem we have in our church today. If Christianity is just about insurance for the afterlife, how does that motivate you to live a life changed into the image of the one who claimed to live the life we're all meant to? And fourth, it's just not the gospel which Jesus preached. When Jesus of Nazareth turned up on the scene on the Sea of Galilee, first century Jew, the first words that one of the biographers of Jesus' life Mark, the evangelist, the first words that are captured from his mouth is an announcement. And the announcement is the gospel. I want to read you these words. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15. This is what Jesus said. After John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's Jesus' gospel summary. Jesus' gospel was the announcement that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, has been initiated, has come near in his person. Why? Because he's the king. He's the king of the cosmos. John Ortberg, a pastor and writer from the States, he said it like this. He says, Jesus' good news, his gospel is simply this, that the kingdom of God has now, through Jesus, become available for ordinary human beings to live in. So let's do a bit of reverse engineering. And I apologize, this first part's probably a bit like, um, you know, heavy in terms of content-wise, but let's just do a bit of reverse engineering for a second. If Jesus preaches a gospel which claims that the kingdom of God is the solution, what's the problem? If Jesus preaches a gospel that claims that the kingdom of God is the solution, what is the problem? Why is the good news so good, in other words? And to answer this, you have to go back to page one of the Bible. The story of the scriptures, it begins with human beings made in the image of God. And this is kingdom language. It's not moral language. It's not relational language. That is a byproduct for sure. But this is kingdom language. To be an image of God is to take the project of creation forward, stewarding the raw materials of this world and pushing out in creativity and in love and in shalom, the blessings of Eden into the known world. But humanity turned in on themselves. This isn't just a story from history. This is our story. This is the picture that it's painting. We turn in on ourselves. We reject our creator and define good and evil for ourselves. And the problem isn't just that we break God's law, therefore. The problem is that we write our own. That we take the kingship of Jesus and living under it to steward God's blessing for the world, and we put ourselves on that throne, and the result is that we usher curse into the world. Which means that creation now is subject to death, decay, brokenness, and all the things which actually put a tear on our eye. That's the problem that the beginning of the scriptures open with. And here's why it sucks. It sucks because the very agents that God wanted to use to minister blessing to the world are themselves, ourselves, in need of 
rescue. And this is the, literally the entire tension of the Old, Old Testament. And the question it raises is who will save me from my sins? And who will model for me the life that I was always intended to live? Humanity is not only in need of something to atone for our sins, we need an example of a king who rules in the way that we were always intended to rule, in God's way, in God's presence for the sake of the world. And this is why the good news is so good. I haven't even applied this to our lives right now, but just think about the story. If this is true, this is why the good news is so good. Jesus came as a sacrifice for our sins. The writer of the Gospel of John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which means there should be nothing which disqualifies you from coming to King Jesus. He's the priest which took away your sins. Nothing should hold you back. Nothing disqualifies you. At the same time, he's the king of the kingdom that we're all invited into. And he represents the citizens we want to become. I like to put it like this. Jesus is he's the answer to the common human plight problem but he's also the model for the new human life. He is saviour and lord. He is priest and king. He deals with our problems, the most fundamental one, and he gives to us new life, which means this, the gospel is less concerned with getting you to heaven. That's a controversial statement. But here's the second part of that statement. It's more concerned with getting heaven into you so that in you, through you, onto and into eternity. You become like the king you were always meant to be, like the queen you were always meant to be, ruling and stewarding God's creation. This world's not going to pass away at the end of our life. It's going to be renewed by God. And we'll stand with God side by side, shoulder to shoulder, ruling with King Jesus. The gospel is not simply about cancelling your debt of sin, although that's true. Praise God, because I know I'd be disqualified otherwise. It's about birthing a new, new life creating in you a new heart. And here's the kicker. The gospel, it's actually not solely about you. It's about God. It's about what he's done. And it's about how humanity, creation, and the cosmos benefit because of it. If we would so let ourselves be wooed into this story, repent and believe, and follow King Jesus. It's about how God is making the world new, and to do so, he's giving new hearts to very unlikely people so that through them, the world would be changed. So what is the gospel? Here's my one-sentence summary. The gospel is the announcement that Jesus, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his giving of the Spirit, and his second coming, it's that he is Savior and Lord. So your sins don't need to hold you back from coming to God and being transformed. At the same time, there is a vision and an adventure that you're being invited into so that through you, God would actually shape history and tip it towards justice, tip it towards beauty, tip it towards creativity. It's the ultimate vindication of all we do with our nine to five, but it's also a story that's bigger, that changes our history. When I was 15, I heard the gospel for the first time. There was a guest preacher at a church called Pine Rivers Church of Christ, which has a dear place in the history of some lives in this room. And he was a chaplain. He preached for an hour and a half, which is only half of what I'm about to preach for. And he talked about God as big from the Proverbs. He said, God's big. He made you for himself. Your heart is restless until it finds its rest in him. And you've walked away. But if it's true that he's made you for himself and he's done everything necessary such that you could be welcomed back into the arms of the one who made you for himself, then come. And I responded to the gospel. 
took me a while. I had to hear some more messages, had to ask some more questions. But when I came to meet Jesus, my life completely changed. I no longer had a guilt complex. I no longer struggled with shame, or at least I knew that I didn't have to. I had meaning. I had purpose. I had hope for the future. I had a family that loved me and would give themselves for me. It's called the church. I knew where I was going in life. I knew that death wouldn't be the full stop in my life. I knew it would just be a comma, ushering me into the next life where Jesus is king and the world is renewed and I'm resurrected in an embodied state so that I could be with him. When I met Jesus, my life completely changed. And yours could too. If you'd repent and believe. That's the gospel. Something's happening. When I was in worship, Pastor Mike came up to me and he said, I just feel to tell you in the same way that the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia talked about Aslan being on the move. He said, I just feel like I need to tell you that Aslan's on the move. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of the Chronicles of Narnia, but in the line in The Witch in the Wardrobe, there's this part in the story where all the snow starts melting and winter is finishing and spring is coming and the flowers are budding. And everyone's like, what's going on? And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, they say, Aslan's on the move. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is a god type. And in the same way, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ took on flesh, bore our sins in his body on the tree, died, was raised again, this is what the gospel writers were saying. They're saying, God's on the move. And he's been on the move ever since. And so that's the gospel. It's the story we need to know. But here's the question, how do we share it? Well, I would suggest that in order to share it, we need to know the person in front of us. Now, this might not sound like groundbreaking information, but I assure you it really needs to be said. Uh, When I was younger, uh, let me illustrate why. When I was younger, um, I used to love buying baseball caps. My pop, he owned a shop in rural New South Wales, and he sold like these basketball caps, which is like, how do they sell in rural New South Wales? It goes off. And one of the things that's true about these baseball caps is on the inside it says one size fits all. And that worked for me when I was 15. But now that I'm older, and there's no way to say this without sounding like I'm saying something else, but I've got a big head now. (laughs) And it is not true that one size fits all. There are different people with different heads. You need to adjust it. I need need to think at the back, which will help me put it on my head. But here's the thing. People have a one-size-fits-all approach to sharing the gospel. They think that all I need to do is memorize a bunch of propositions so I can cast it out into a a group of people like a magic spell, and those who are meant to, they'll come and receive Jesus, and those who weren't, they won't. And and I just want to say there's a few problems with this. The first, well, one major problem with this. It's just not what the apostles did. It's not what the early Christians did. The problem with it is that it runs the risk of making the gospel utterly irrelevant to the person in front of us. When we think of the gospel as a set of propositions that we just dish out, we're making a big assumption. We're assuming that the people in front of us have the same categories of life that we value. And that might have been true in the 20th century. In the 20th century, in the Western world at least, People had a basic appreciation for Christianity and religion in particular, you know, or I should say in general. They had a basic appreciation for these things. They might not have said they were Christian, or they might have said, I'm Christian, but what they really mean is that their parents are Christian and, you know, they were Protestant, now they're Catholic. But it was just a cultural thing. But they already had an appreciation of the categories. We live in what sociologists are calling now a post-Christian world. 
which means people think that they've tried Jesus and found him wanting, which means people don't agree with the basic categories of life that Christians would inherently find valuable. For our work colleagues, our friends, and even our families, Christianity is not seen as something that's basically true. It's seen as something outdated and irrelevant, and maybe even a little bit immoral. So if we memorize a phrase like this, oh, Jesus is king, and he's atoned for your sin, and it's all going to be okay, and then we say it like a magical spell on everyone and everyone that we meet, they're just going to think this. They're going to think, what the heck? What does a first century Jew from Nazareth and his death have anything to do with me? I don't even agree that sin is a worthwhile category to define what I do with my life. They don't agree with the categories that we have. In short, it's like speaking another language to them. If all you do when you preach the gospel is memorize propositions, just cast them out like a spell, it's going to be like speaking another language. So how do we make the gospel relevant to people? And here's the answer. We just need to find common ground between the gospel story and their story. We need to find common ground between the gospel story and their story. I've been really challenged. We've just read through the book of Acts as a church community. Uh, And in the book of Acts, you've, you've got a window into the early church. And the early church, they had this knack for creating disciples of Jesus preaching the gospel, seeing lives change, seeing communities birthed, and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things you'll notice, if you look at the preaching of the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest thinkers in the Western historical world, although at the time it was the Middle East, I acknowledge that. The Apostle Paul, he would actually change his preaching. When he'd go into a city, he didn't change his message that he believed in his mind. He had a very robust understanding of the gospel. But when he went into a city, he'd change what he addressed first, depending on his hearer. How do I know this? Whenever he'd go into a city, he'd typically go first to the Jewish synagogue, and when he's there, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, would say that Paul reasoned from the Jewish scriptures and proved that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah longed hoped for by the Jewish people. Why did he do that? Because Paul knew that the Jews to whom he was speaking already valued the Old Testament scriptures. He found common ground. But when Paul goes to pagan cities, When he goes to places that they didn't grow up, you know, on a steady diet of the Jewish scriptures, he doesn't go to the Jewish scriptures. He actually goes to pagan philosophy. I don't know if you knew you could do that. Paul did. He went to pagan philosophy. Now, Paul was wise, and he had a very robust understanding of the Christian story. And so this takes maturity and wisdom. I'll I'll acknowledge that. But Paul knew that the common ground was pagan philosophy. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, he's addressing Stoics and Epicurean philosophers on the Areopagus. And in there, he gets, to the, he gets to the statement that Jesus is king and that judgment is coming, but it's good news because you can be part of that kingdom which makes the world new. But to get there, he doesn't go to the Jewish Old Testament. He quotes two pieces of poetry. In verse 28, it says this, in him we live and move and have our being. That's one piece of pagan poetry. And then the next phrase is, we are his offspring. Another piece of pagan poetry. Paul redeemed pagan poetry of the time to use it as a ground from which he could tell people about Jesus. He found common ground. The announcement was always the same, but the way that Paul got there was different depending on who he was talking to. See, Paul holds two things in tension. Faithfulness to the story of Jesus and flexibility to the person in front of him. And you ask, what's the line between those things? Honesty with yourself. Honesty with yourself. And two... Deep compassion for the person that's in front of you. Paul intimately knew those who he shared the gospel with, and he directed his testimony to the most relevant parts of their lives. For Paul, common ground for Jews was the Jewish scriptures. Common ground for pagans was pagan 
poetry. Here's the question, what is it in our day? As I, as I share these next few things, why don't you think about people in your world? Why don't you think about, you know, Derek who sits across from you at the desk. I don't know anyone named Derek, but it's a good name. Why don't you think about your boss? Why don't you think about your children? Whatever stage of life you find yourself in, just start to put names to these stories as I articulate. People in a post-Christian culture, they may not be asking questions about Christianity in particular. We've got no common ground there necessarily. But they are asking questions about meaning. People in a post-Christian culture, they're not asking questions about, I don't know, the death of Jesus and atonement for sins, but they are asking questions about hope. People in a post-Christian culture, they're asking questions about justice. They're asking questions about purpose. They're asking questions about life after death. They're asking questions about loneliness. They're asking questions about the environment. And if Jesus is the king of the cosmos and he's going to renew it one day and he's using a people to help him get there or at least participate in it, the gospel speaks to all of those things. The life, the death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus is perpetually relevant. The gospel addresses every basic hope, every basic fear, every ultimate longing and every big question. How? Well, think about it. Imagine you've met someone, and I'm just going to call this person Existential Edward, right? He's not a Christian, he'd call himself a secular, he works in admin, but he loves asking big questions at night. Like, he's on his bed, he's belly button gazing, he's like, why am I here, where is this all going, and does this all really matter? The Gospel of Jesus speaks very directly to him. Existential Edward, he's scared of death. What would the Gospel of Jesus say? It would say that because of the resurrection of Jesus, death does not need to be your full stop. If you come... Meet him, know him. Everything he's done has made this possible for you. Death does not need to be your full stop. What about social justice, Samantha? This is something I coined up in my own words. She's anti-human trafficking. She wants to ensure that everyone feels included. She's got a big heart for people that feel lonely and marginalized. I want to champion social justice, Samantha. How do I do that? The gospel of Jesus does. It says that, Samantha, the best home, the best home for your desire for justice It's found in the coming judgment of God. This is why Peter would write later and he'd say, do not judge. He'd say to people, let God who judges justly do so in the end. It tempers that that desire for justice, which so easily corrodes into evil, but it also inspires it with a better story that gives it a better home. Now, I'm not saying that the gospel agrees with everything that's true about us. Every time you come to meet Jesus, it's more compelling than you'd imagine, but also more costly than you'd think. And Jesus invites all to come, but he also promises that he will change us. Who is it in your world? What's their story? This is gospel preaching. You might not think that, but it is. Preaching the gospel is taking the story of Jesus and ministering it to people where they're at. That's why the writer of the book of John, in John 1 it said, God took on flesh and dwelt among us. The better way to translate that, I follow Eugene Peterson, it said God moved into our neighborhood. We move into the neighborhood of people's lives, meet them where they're at, and minister to them the most relevant piece of the gospel story. Not that that would be the only thing they hear from us. No, it's a journey of discipleship, and all of our minds are maturing in our thoughts about God as we join that journey. But preaching the gospel is finding the most relevant part to minister to people, which means, this is the last point I'll make, it is a gospel imperative to get to know people. Yeah, amen. There's people in your world that you don't know. And God would say to you, get to know them. Love on them. It might not turn into a gospel opportunity. That's actually okay. Christians give without reserve, without strings attached. But if it does turn into a gospel opportunity, here's what you could say. 
If you're a Christian and you want to tell people about the God who's changed your life, you need to get to know the lives of others. The gospel, it's not a magical spell that you cast without qualification. It is the testimony that you give in a way that meets people where they're at. So as I close, let me just invite you to think about where you're at. For some of us, here's what this might mean. It's going to mean that we need to pluck up the courage to tell people about Jesus. Some of us here are scared. We think that there's a lot on the line. And for some of us here, we actually need to pluck up the courage. We need to speak more. Before I make the second point, I just want to invite the band to come up and join me. That's for some of us. We need to speak more. We need to be heralds. For others of us, though, we need to speak less. (laughs) You might think, well, that's counterintuitive. There's a message people need to know. But hear me out. If it's true that you need to get to know the person that you're talking to, then you need to get good at conversation so you can understand them. And conversation, it's usually birthed not by you telling people statements that they never asked you about. It's birthed by questions. So for some of us, we're just like, you know, a bullet. I don't know the right expression to say here, but for some of us, we need to speak less. We need to ask more questions. We need to journey with people deeper so that they might reveal to us the person beneath the surface. And there, right there, that's where people reveal who they really are, what their hopes really are, what their dreams really are, what their fears really are. In other words, that's the place the gospel speaks to. We need to speak less. So what are you going to do? What kind of questions are you going to ask your colleagues this week? What an exciting question. What kind of questions are you going to ask your colleagues this week? You could ask worldview questions. Hey, why do you believe what you believe? You could ask story questions. Hey, tell me your story. How did you come to believe what you believe? They're very different. They open up very different conversations. You could ask them, hey, how was the weekend? If they say bad, just say, hey, is that usual? What was so bad about the weekend? Tell me all about that. How do you typically react when the weekend's bad? How does that set you up for the week? What questions can you ask your work colleagues this week? These are brilliant things. For all of us, though, and here's where I close, we're all invited no matter whether you need to speak more or less in your desire to herald the gospel, we're all invited to become more like Jesus so that people ask us questions to which his kingship and his being saviour are the answer. So to share the gospel, we need to know two things. One, what the gospel story is, and two, the story of the person in front of us. So here's the question I leave you with. What is your story? What are your hopes? What are your fears? Where do you think you're going? And if you're not someone who's ever sat for long enough to think deep enough about the answer to those questions, I want to open up a space just now before the band begins and just invite you to think about that. What are the questions that plague you? What are your hopes? What are your fears? And so we'll just do that for a minute. And then I invite you to join me in prayer on the other side. So just take a moment. Talk to God about it. What are your hopes? What are your fears? Who are you? What's your story?
have a name. Behind that name is a story. And it's one preacher I have listened to in the past has shared really beautifully, every story matters to God. And the promise of the gospel is that your story can find its larger frame in the story of Jesus, who lived, died, paid for your sins, was buried, rose again, and is coming back to make all things new and invites you to join with him for the forgiveness of your sins, hallelujah, and for the adventure of a lifetime as you become the agent through whom God ministers blessing and renewal to this world. And so if you've never started that journey with God, I want to invite you just to pray along with me. And this isn't a magical prayer. Think of it as the beginning of a conversation that you start with God. That conversation needs to have added to it community in church, journeying in the scriptures, life in community. But this is the start. And I want to invite you to pray along with me. And so we're just going to say, God, sorry for not being with you, living life with reference to you. Thank you for the story of Jesus. Please help me follow after you. You are now my king and my savior. And so if that's you, as the rest of the church closes their eyes and we bow our heads, I just invite you to pray along with me. Let's pray. God, sorry for not living my life in reference to you. Thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus, who is savior and who is king. God, please help me follow after Jesus. I commit and give my allegiance to him. And I trust that you, by your spirit, will help me, lead me, and grow me. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you joined us in that prayer, I just want to encourage you, please tell someone. Share with me, one of our ministry leadership team you saw up here before, or someone with a black host shirt on their back. Share it over dinner, outside later. Don't let what happened there stop. Let it continue on into this community so we can celebrate with you. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus.